0: Decision. They sat in the Explorer on top of the ridge overlooking the jungle covered East Valley. The windows were down. They listened to the bellowing of the Tyrannosaurs as the huge animals crashed through the underbrush. They both left the nest, Thorn said. Yeah, those guys must have taken something, Malcolm sighed. They were silent a while, listening. They heard a soft buzzing, and then Eddie pulled up alongside them in a motorcycle. I thought you might need help. Are you going to go down? Malcolm shook his head. Uh, no. Uh, no, 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 absolutely not. It's too dangerous. Uh, we don't know where they are. Sarah Harding said, Well, why did Dodgson just stand there like that? That's not a way to act around predators. You get caught around lions, you just, you know, you make a lot of noise, wave your hands, throw things at them. Try to scare them off. You don't just stand there. It probably read the wrong research paper, Malcolm said, shaking his head. There has been a theory going around that Tyrannosaurus can only see movement. A guy named Roxton made, made casts of a Rex brain case and concluded that Tyrannosaurus had the brain of a frog. The radio clicked. Levine said, Roxton is an idiot. He doesn't know anything about anatomy to have sex with his wife. His paper was a joke. What paper? Thorn said. The radio clicked again. Roxton, Levine said. I believe the Tyrannosaurus had a visual system like an amphibian, like a frog. A frog sees motion but doesn't see stillness. But it is quite impossible that a predator such as a tyrannosaurus would have a visual system that worked that way. Quite impossible. Because the most common defense of prey animals is to freeze. A deer or something like that is it senses dangers and it freezes. A predator has to be able to see them anyway. And of course the tyrannosaur occurred. Over the radio, Levine snorted with disgust. Ugh, it's just like that other idiotic theory put forth by Grant a few years back that the Tyrannosaurus could be confused by a driving rainstorm because it was not adapted to wet climates. That's equally absurd. The Cretaceous wasn't particularly dry. In any case, Tyrannosaurus are North American animals. They've only ever been found in the US or Canada. Tyrannosaurus rex lived in the shores of the Great Inland Sea, east of the Rocky Mountains. There were lots of thunderstorms on mountain slopes. I'm quite sure Tyrannosaurus saw plenty of rain, and they evolved to deal with it. So, so, is there any reason why a Tyrannosaurus might not attack somebody, Malcolm said. Yes, of course. The most obvious one, Naveen said. Ah, which is? If it wasn't hungry. If it had just eaten another animal. Anything larger than a goat would take care of its hunger for hours to come. No, no, the Tyrannosaurus sea is fine. Moving or still. They listened to the roaring coming up from the valley below. They saw thrashing in the underbrush about half a mile away to the north. More bellowing. The two Rexes seemed to be answering each other. Sarah Harding said, What are we carrying? Thorne said, The three lens straps fully loaded. Okay, she said. Let's go. The radio crackled. I'm not there. Levine said over the radio, but I'd certainly advise waiting. Ah, the the hell with waiting, Malcolm said. Sarah's right. Let's get down there and see how bad it is. Your funeral, Levine said. Arby came back to the monitor, wiping his chin. He still looked a little green. What are they doing now? Dr. Malcolm and the others are going to the nest. Are you kidding? He said, alarmed. Don't worry, Kelly said. Sarah can handle it. You hope, Arby said. NEST Just beyond the clearing they parked the explorer. Eddie pulled up in the motorcycle and leaned it against the trunk of the tree and waited while the others climbed out of the explorer. Sarah Harding smelled the familiar sour odour of rotting flesh and excrement that always marked a carnivore's nesting site. In the afternoon heat it was faintly nauseating. Flies buzzed in the still air. Harding took one of the rifles slung it over her shoulder. She looked at the three men. They were all standing very still, tense and not moving. Malcolm's face was pale, particularly around his lips. It reminded her of the time that Kaufman, her old professor, had visited her in Africa. Kaufman was one of those hard-drinking Hemingway types, with lots of affairs at home, and lots of tales of his adventures with the orangs in Sumatra, the ring-tailed lemurs in Madagascar, So she took him with her to a kill site in the savannah, and he promptly passed out. He weighed more than two hundred pounds, and she had to drag him out by the collar while the lions circled and snarled at her. It had been a good lesson for her. Now she leaned close to the three men and whispered, ''If you've got any qualms about this, don't go. Just wait here. I don't want to worry about you. I can do this myself.'' She started off. ''Are you sure?'' Yes, now keep quiet. She moved directly forward, towards the clearing. Malcolm and the others hurried to catch up with her. She pushed aside the palm fronds and stepped out into the open. The Tyrannosaurs were gone, and the mud cone was deserted. Over to the right she saw a shoe, with a bit of torn flesh sticking out above the ragged sock. That was all that was left of Basilton. From within the nest she heard a plaintive, high-pitched squeal, Harding climbed up the mud bank. With Malcolm struggling to follow, she saw two infant tyrannosaurs there, mewling. Nearby were three large eggs. They saw heavy footprints all around in the mud. We uh, took one of the eggs, Malcolm said. Damn! You didn't want anything to disrupt this little ecosystem? Malcolm smiled crookedly. Uh, yeah, I was hoping. Too bad, she said, and moved quickly around the edge of the pit. She bent over, looking at the baby to Annosaurs. One of the babies was cowering. Its downy neck pulled into its body. But the second one behaved very different. It did not move as they approached, but remained lying sprawled on its side, breathing shallowly, eyes glazed. This one's been hurt," she said. Levine was standing in the high hired He pressed the headset to his ear and spoke into the microphone near his cheek. I need a description, he said. Thor said, There's uh, there's two of them. Roughly uh, two feet long, weighing about maybe about 40 pounds. About the size of a small cassowary birds. Large eyes, uh, short snouts, pale brown color. There's a ring of down around the necks. Can they stand? Uh, If they can, not very well. They're kind of flopping around, squeaking a lot. Then they're infants, Levine said, nodding. Probably only a few days old. Never been out of the nest. I'll be very careful." Why's that? If I being that young, Levine said, the parents won't leave me alone too long. Harding moved closer to the injured infant. Still mewling, the baby tried to crawl towards her, dragging its body awkwardly. One leg was bent at an odd angle. I think this left leg's really hurt. Eddie came closer, standing alongside her to see. Is it broken? Yeah, probably, but— Hey! Eddie said. The baby lunged forward and clamped its jaws around the ankle of his boot. He pulled his foot away, dragging the baby, which held its grip tightly. Hey! Let go! Eddie lifted his leg up, shaking it back and forth, but the baby refused to let go. He pulled for a moment longer, then stopped. Now the baby just lay there on the ground, breathing shallowly, jaws still locked around Eddie's boot. Jeez! Eddie said. Aggressive little guy, isn't he? Sarah said. Right from birth. Eddie looked down at the tiny, razor-sharp jaws. They hadn't penetrated the leather. The baby held on firmly. With the butt of his rifle, he poked the infant's head a couple of times. It had no effect at all. The baby lay on the ground, breathing shallowly. His big eyes blinked slowly as they stared up at Eddie. But it didn't release its grip. They heard the distant roars of the parents somewhere to the north. Uh, Ah, let's get out of here. Malcolm said, uh, we've, we've seen here what we've, what we've come here to see, we've got to find where Darson went. Thorn said, I think I saw a track up the trail. They might have gone off there. And we better have a look. They all started back to the car. Well, wait a minute, Eddie said looking down at his foot, well, what, what what am I going to do about the baby? Uh, shoot it, Malcolm said over his shoulder. You, you mean kill it? Sarah said, it's got a broken leg Eddie. It's going to die anyway. Yeah, but... Thorn called. We're going back up to the trail, Eddie. And if we don't find Dutton, we'll take the ridge road going down towards the laboratory. Then down to the trailer again. Okay, Doc. I'm right behind you. Eddie lifted his rifle, turned it in his hands. Do it now, Sarah said, climbing into the Explorer. Because you don't want to be here when that Mummer and papa get back. Gambler's Ruin. Driving up the trail, Malcolm stared at the dashboard monitor. As the image flicked from one camera view to another, he was looking for Dodgson and the rest of his party. Over the radio, Levine said, How bad was it? We took one egg, Malcolm said, and we had to shoot one of the babies. So a loss of two, out of a total hatching brood of what, six? That's right. Frankly, I'd say it's a minor matter, Levine said, as long as you stop those people from doing anything more. We're uh, we're looking for them now, Malcolm said morosely. Harding said, It was bound to happen, Ian. You know, you can't expect to observe the animals without changing anything. It's a scientific impossibility. Well, of course it is, Malcolm said. That's the greatest single scientific discovery of the 20th century. You can't study anything without changing it. Since Galileo, scientists had adopted the view that they were objective observers of the natural world that was implicit in every aspect of their behaviour, even the way they wrote scientific papers saying things like, it was observed, as if nobody had observed it. For three hundred years that impersonal quality was the hallmark of science. Science was objective, and the observer had no influence on the results he or she described. This subjective made science different from the humanities or from religion. Fields where the observer's point of view was integral, where the observer was inextricably mixed up in the results observed. But in the twentieth century, that difference had vanished. Scientific objectivity was gone, even at the most fundamental levels. Physicists now knew you couldn't even measure a single subatomic particle without affecting it totally. If you stuck your instruments in to measure the particle's position, you changed its velocity if you measured its velocity you changed its position that basic truth became heisenberg uncertainty principle that whatever you studied you also changed in the end it became clear that all scientists were participants in a participatory universe which does not allow anyone to be a mere observer Uh, i know our objectivity is impossible malcolm said impatiently i'm not concerned about that then what are you concerned about i'm concerned about the gambler's ruin Malcolm said, staring at the monitor. Gambler's ruin was a notorious and much-debated statistical phenomenon that had major consequences both for evolution and for everyday life. "'Well, let's say you're a gambler,' he said, "'and you're you're playing a, a coin toss game. "'Every time the coin comes up heads, you win a dollar. "'Every time it comes up tails, you lose a dollar. "'Okay. "'And what happens over time?' Harding shrugged. "'The chance of getting either heads or tails is even.' So maybe you win, maybe you lose, but in the end you'll come out at zero. Unfortunately you don't, Malcolm said. If you uh you gamble long enough, you always lose. The gambler is always ruined. That's why the casinos stay in business. But the question is, what happens over time? What happens in that period before the gambler is finally ruined? Okay, she said, What happens? If you uh chart the gambler's fortunes over time, what you find is the gambler wins for a period, or loses for a period. In other words, everything in the world goes goes in stakes. It's a real phenomenon. And uh, you see it everywhere, in weather, in uh, river flooding, in baseball, in, the, uh, in hard rhythms, in uh, stock markets. Uh, once things go bad, they tend to stay bad. Like the old folk saying that bad things come in threes. Complexity theory tells us that the folk wisdom is right. Bad things cluster. Things go to hell together. That is the real world. So what are you saying? That things are going to go hell now? Uh, they could be, thanks to Dijson, Malcolm said, frowning at the monitor. What happened to those bastards, anyway? King There was a buzzing like the sound of a distant bee. Howard King was dimly aware of it as he slowly came back to consciousness. He opened his eyes and saw the windshield of the car and the branches of the trees beyond. The buzzing was louder. King didn't know where he was. He couldn't remember how he got here, what had happened. He felt pain in his shoulders and his lips. His forehead throbbed. He tried to remember, but the pain distracted him, prevented him from thinking clearly. The last thing he remembered was the Tyrannosaur in front of him and the road. That was the last thing. Then Dodgson had locked back and King turned his head and cried out as a sudden, sharp pain ran up his neck to his skull. The pain made him gasp, took his breath away. He closed his eyes, wincing, then he slowly opened them again. Dodson was not in the car. The driver's door hung wide open, a dappled shadow across the door panel. The keys were still in the ignition. Dodson was gone. There was a streak of blood across the top of the steering wheel. The black box was on the floor by the gear shift. The open driver's door creaked a little and moved a little. In the distance King heard the buzzing again, like a giant bee. It was a mechanical sound, he now realised, something mechanical. It made him think of the boat. How long would the boat wait at the river? What time was it anyway? He looked at his watch. The crystal was smashed, the hands fixed at 1.54. He heard the buzzing again. It was coming closer. With an effort, King pushed himself away from the seats toward the dashboard. Streaks of electric pain shot up his spine, but quickly subsided. He took a deep breath. I'm all right," he thought. At least I'm still here. King looked at the open driver's door in the sunlight. The sun was still high. It must still be some time in the afternoon. When was the boat leaving? Four o'clock? Five o'clock? He couldn't remember any more. But he was certain that those Spanish fishermen wouldn't hang around once it was starting to get dark. They'd leave the island. And Howard King wanted to be on that boat when they did. It was the only thing he wanted in the world. Wincing, he raised himself up and painfully slid open the driver's seat. He settled himself in, took a deep breath, and then leaned over and looked out the open door. The car was hanging over an empty space, supported by trees, he saw a steep jungle hillside falling away beneath him. It was dark beneath the canopy of the trees. He felt dizzy just looking down. The ground must be twenty to thirty feet below him. He saw scattered green ferns and a few dark boulders. He twisted his body to look more. And then he saw him. Dodgson lay on his back, head downward, on the slope of the hill. His body was crumpled, arms and legs thrown out in the awkward positions. He was not moving. King couldn't see him very well in the dense foliage of the hillside, but Dodson looked dead. The buzzing was suddenly very loud, building rapidly, and King looked forward and saw, through the foliage that blocked the windshield, a car driving by, not ten yards away, a car. And then the car was gone. From the sound of it, he thought, it was an electric car, so it must be Malcolm. Howard King was somehow encouraged by the thought that other people were on the island. He felt new strength. Despite the pain in his body, he reached forward and turned the key in the ignition, and the engine rumbled. He put the car in gear and gently stepped on the accelerator. The rear wheels span. He engaged the front wheel drive. At once the Jeep rumbled forward, lurching through the branches. A moment later, he was out on the road. He remembered this road now. To the right it led down to the Tyrannosaur nests. Malcolm's car had gone to the left. King turned left and headed up the road. He was trying to remember how to get back to the river back to the boat. He vaguely recalled there was a wire fork in the road at the top of the hill. He would take that fork, he decided, drive down the hill and get the hell off this island. That was his only goal, to get off this island before it was too late. Bad News The explorer came to the top of the hill and the fawn drove onto the ridge road. The road curved back and forth, cutting to the rock face of the cliff. In many places the drop-off was precipitous, but they had views over the entire island. Eventually they came into a place where they could look over the valley. They could see the high hide off to the left, and closer by the clearing with the two trailers. Off to the right was the laboratory complex, and the worker complex beyond. I, uh, I don't see Dodgson anywhere, Malcolm said unhappily. Uh, where could he have gone? Thorne pushed the radio button. Arby? Yes, Doc. You see them? No, but... He hesitated. What? Don't you want to come back here now? It's pretty amazing. What is? Fawn said. Any, Arby said. He's just got back and he's brought the baby with him. Malcolm leaned forward. He did what?